Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Continuing forward in the book of Acts, we'll be looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 as our verses of focus today. I'll be reading from chapter 5, verse 33, through to chapter 6, verse 15. And please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain. And all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 <clears throat> Please be seated. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. 
The title of today's sermon is Unity Transforms Dispute into Multiplication. Uh, We're looking at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 6. Look at the setting of this event. And we'll look uh, specifically at the complaint that was brought. We'll see how the apostles respond with good leadership, humble, wise, courageous. And we'll see how the multitude of disciples respond similarly. And then we'll see how the apostles receive their suggestion, approving it and praying and laying hands on the seven. And then the result of this is church growth. And so we'll take a look at this event and see how church unity, uh, all of the aspects of church unity are able to overcome these challenges, these times when difficulties arise because of sin and because of uh, challenges associated with living together in this world. So first of all, the setting. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Please remember the last uh, verse in chapter 5. It says, And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they're going through the scriptures and they're arguing with, they're making their argument that Jesus, this one they've seen, is the Christ foretold in the Old Testament writings. And so the apostles are ignoring the lawless command of the Jewish Supreme Court that had beaten them and had reiterated the commandment not to speak the name of Jesus, not to teach and preach in his name. They continue to do this every day in the temple, in every house. They did not cease in their evangelism. They continued steadfastly in their mission. And so we are seeing continued church growth, continued success through the preaching of the word and through them going forth and carrying carrying out the mission that Jesus gave to them. Commentary says, it does our hearts good to find that the number of the disciples is multiplied as no doubt it vexed the priests and Sadducees to the heart for them to see this. The opposition that the preaching of the gospel met with, instead of checking its progress, contributed to the success of it. In this infant Christian church, like the infant Jewish church in Egypt, the more it was afflicted, the more it multiplied. The preachers were beaten, threatened, and abused. And yet the people received their doctrine, invited, no doubt, thereto by their wonderful patience and cheerfulness under their trials, which convinced men that they were born up and carried on by a, by a better spirit than their own. So this is what's going on. The church is growing. The word is going forth in spite of this persecution, in spite of the threats and the beatings that these church leaders had received. I want us to kind of get into the flow of the descriptions that Luke gives to us of church growth in the book of Acts. In chapter 2, verse 41, remember this text? Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were, were added to them. So the idea here is addition, growth in, the terms of, in terms of addition. And then in verse 47 of chapter 2, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Again, early on we see addition is the idea being used to describe church growth. And then in chapter Uh, 4 verse 32, the gathering of people is described as a multitude. So now through addition, a multitude is in place. A multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And then in chapter 5 verse 14, we saw believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So increasingly added, there's a lot being added at this point. They needed to add another word there, increasingly added. And then in chapter 5, verse 16, again, the idea of a multitude. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem. So up until this point in time, church growth has been described primarily through the concept of addition. Okay. Now, it's also worth noting that this word disciples here to describe a believer is the first use of this book, of this term in the book of Acts since uh, chapter one. So the church has grown and you have these multitudes and for the first time they're called disciples. Uh, 
And so the church is described as being comprised of disciples at this point in time. So it's worth pausing to consider this. Uh, What is a disciple? Well, prior to this, they were called believers, and that's true as well. But then there's an expression of what it means to be a believer, and that is their learners, their pupils. They are devoting themselves to what they're being taught. They're devoted together, recall in Acts 2.42, to the apostles' doctrine. And so they're demonstrating a life of learning through setting themselves before the teaching on a regular basis. So this was a community of ongoing teaching and learning of preachers and pupils that defined the way the whole thing operated. Those who had been instructed by Jesus, they had been the learners, and now they're the teachers because they had been instructed by Jesus. And multitudes are now learning of Jesus from them as the Christ. And I think it's um, beautiful to note uh, the quick summary phrase that's used there to describe the preaching. Jesus as the Christ, right? Isn't that exactly what the Emmaus Road conversation was all about? Was showing them that the Christ had to suffer and die. And so they're going through the Old Testament scriptures over and over again. They're taking all that Jesus has taught them about himself in the Old Testament. And they're going through this over and over again with the people showing how Jesus is the Messiah. They're learning this. And in due time, these disciples, what will happen They will rise up and they will be teaching others because they have learned that pupil rises up to the level of the teacher when they listen and learn is what we're told. Now, we also come in this text to the word multiplying. And this is the first time this word is used in the book of Acts. And it's a new kind of church growth. Prior to this, Luke uses the concept of addition in describing church growth. So we've entered a new phase of church growth, and this will continue in future descriptions of church growth in the book of Acts. And this word multiplying here, this Greek word, is just abounding. It's increasing greatly. And I think it's likely associated with the concept of disciples growing up, learning, and becoming teachers. So the growth of the church is no longer limited to just the teaching and preaching coming forth from the leaders of the church. People are learning. People are growing up in the knowledge of Jesus as the Christ. And now they're spreading the word themselves. They're opening their Bibles from home to home in the temple every day as well. And so you can see the multiplicative nature of church growth at that time. Because we're all called to be ministers, right? Um, The church exists to um, help equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the setting. Luke wants the reader to know the church has continued growing. And is now growing in a multiplicative fashion. It's even growing faster now. Thousands were added at Pentecost and had shortly become a multitude. And this growth had not stopped after the Sanhedrin had the apostles beaten. In fact, church growth rate had increased. No longer just added or increasingly added, but now the number of disciples was multiplying. We need to see a very large influx of believers and consider all the blessings and all the difficulties that go along with this situation. So that's where we are. So what is the complaint? The text says there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So what is this word complaint? Well, it's a murmuring, it's a muttering. Often it's associated with a secret debate, a secret displeasure, not openly avowed. So this is sinful, what is happening here. Uh, And it was inside the minds of the people who were upset to begin with. But eventually they obviously they voiced it and it made its way back to the apostles. Commentary says it casts a damp upon us to find that the multiplying of the disciples proves an occasion of discord. Hitherto, they were all with one accord, right? That's all we've heard up till now. One accord, one accord. This is the first time. We bump into something like this. This had been often taken notice of to their honor, but now that they were multiplied, they began to murmur. Yes, they had had the internal difficulty before where a husband and wife had lied to the Holy Spirit and they die. Uh, The Lord um, takes their life. And that was an internal issue in the church that God dealt with. But now we have a different kind of issue coming forth, one that uh, all of us have heard of and seen with our own eyes. So what is this complaint? It is a complaint against the Hebrews 
by the Hellenists. And so this will require us to kind of think through these terms and what the situation was. So they're all Jewish Christians, okay? None of these are Gentile Christians, maybe a few, but in general, this church is made up of Jews who have become Christians. But some had a background of growing up in Hellenized culture where Greek would have been their primary language, okay? And others' upbringing was with Hebrew, and that's a mistake there, with Aramaic as their primary language. They would have spoken Hebrew as well, but Aramaic would have been their daily use language. So there was a significant cultural difference between these Jews, and it was something you could note through just a brief interaction. Uh, It was something that was externally observable. But they are all Jews who had now become disciples of Christ, but they're different, right? So there's this external difference that you can see between these two separate groups. Commentary says the complaint was an expression of discontent among the affected believers that eventually made its way to the apostles. Luke describes the problem in terms of the Hellenists being pitted against the Hebrews there in the congregation. And now here the term Hellenist describes Jews whose primary language is Greek, while the term Hebrews refers to Aramaic-speaking Jews. These terms describe a linguistic distinction, not primarily ethnic differences. There were no non-Jewish believers in Jerusalem or anywhere else at this time. And I would say there may have been a few, but in general, this is a Jewish church, Jews who had become Christians. Back to the commentary, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews who had returned from the diaspora to live in Jerusalem, attending their own synagogues. I don't necessarily know that for sure. Some of these may have still been there from Pentecost, uh, and others may have uh, lived there. So what were they complaining about? What was the complaint? And the text says, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. This probably is referring to food. And so these are widows, uh, the church, this fledgling new community of believers expressing love for one another. You remember all the uh, money that had been brought to the disciples and laid at their feet. Somehow they'd come up with a plan to turn that money into food and take care daily of the widows who needed care. So in comparison to the Hebrew widows, the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution for their daily needs. Who knows exactly what was happening? Uh, The apostles were overseeing this at this point. They were the ones who were kind of directly managing it somehow. And the administration process just wasn't working well. Uh, And perhaps there were prejudices as well. We don't really know why this was happening. But there are some things to note. A daily distribution is occurring. They'd been overseeing this. The disciples had. And so this is good for us to note. It was an expression of their love for one another, and they were trying to take care of each other. There were a lot of needs, and they were trying to meet the needs. Commentary says, in the context of food distribution, the term describes an official assignment related to this charitable activity, implying both an official commissioning for this task, as well as the responsibility and the obligation connected with this task. It appears that this official assignment had been handled in a somewhat random fashion, which served the Hebrew-speaking widows well, while the Greek-speaking widows were neglected. So however it had come to pass, apparently not enough thought or care had been given to it to make sure that things were handled in a fashion that would be fair or that would uh, not have the appearance of a lack of fairness. Next, I think it's important to see that these church members are ministering to one another. You see that this is something where they're loving each other and they're seeking to make things happen. So this is, you know, the the other side of the coin. The bad side of the coin is that they started having a disagreement. But the good news is this occurred within the context of trying to serve each other. Somehow some sort of system had emerged and servants from amongst the church membership had arisen who were actively seeing to the needs of others by participating in the handing out of the daily distribution to the widows. Commentary says, supporting widows and orphans is an Old Testament commandment, which was repeatedly reinforced by the prophets. So they're living out the scriptures. 
The neglect of widows is disobedience against the will of God. The complaint of the Hellenists suggests that it was the Hebrews, that is the Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians, who were responsible for the food assistance and who were overlooking the widows of the Greek-speaking believers. So is this kind of getting a picture of what's going on here? This fast-moving growth that's taking place and people are coming in all the time. Money's coming in. They're turning it into food. People are trying to help. This is a fast-moving situation. Next, we see the natural cultural distinction becomes an occasion for hard feelings, for murmurings, and for division. I can't help but wonder if, um, if indeed a neglect was taking place, um, but if, if perhaps it just was something that you could see because people were different. You could see differences on the outside and care wasn't being taken to make sure that things were being distributed evenly and that non-random distribution, uh, or excuse me, that random distribution uh, ended up, you know, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? Who knows exactly how it happened, but it does emphasize, doesn't it, the importance of taking care in these types of things, of administering things carefully, to maintain trust, because trust can be harmed, and that's what happened in this situation. So how do the apostles respond to this? There's so much to learn from the way the apostles respond Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what do they do first? They summon the multitudes of the disciples. Now let that sink in. You talk talk about congregational meeting, okay? Okay. This is a multitude. And somehow they get them all together. They call them all together. They take quick and decisive action to bring all the church together. So step one, let's get everybody together. But they don't just show up and just throw out random ideas. They've apparently looked to the scriptures and they have a plan in mind. And they want the whole church together to hear the plan that they lay out for the church. So they're leading, but they're getting everyone involved. They lay out their plan and their reasons. So they give their plan and their reasons for their plan, and they they ask for all the church to consider it. Now, if you think about this, this really requires wisdom to know what to do, courage, and humility. Because they don't know how the people are going to respond, do they? They do not know how the people are going to respond. So what they don't do is go around and try to talk to everybody first. We don't see any evidence of trying to politic and get things set up right before the meeting. They trust the Lord. They look to his wise ways and they come together with all the people demonstrating love and unity and cooperation, intentional cooperation in facing this challenge together. Commentary says, they called the multitude of the disciples unto them, the heads of the congregations of Christians in Jerusalem, the principal leading men. The twelve themselves would not determine anything without them, for in multitude of counselors there is safety. And in an affair of this nature, those might be best able to advise who were (coughs) more conversant in the affairs of this life than the apostles were. So the apostles are demonstrating the reality that they probably don't know the details of the situation very well. And they want everyone there who understands and they lay out a general plan and want the people who understand the details to comment on this plan. So their plan, what is it? I think a good way to describe it is it's a cooperative, interactive, decision-making process to create a division of labor overseen by the, still overseen by the apostles. So the first thing they do is they ask the brethren. So, of course, they've got everybody together. And the first step in the plan is they ask the brethren to select seven men from amongst their midst to oversee the daily distribution, this business. And so they, they give this assignment, but they trust that the, the people 
are the ones who are going to know who to choose to oversee this in a way that can be done properly and that will solve this difficulty. And, and there's two difficulties. There's the discord between these two groups. And there's also the apostles' awareness that they can't do everything that needs to be done. That they need to do what they're supposed to do. And yet this work needs to be taken care of. They do not impose a solution. Commentary says they don't impose a solution. They give a plan, but they don't impose the solution. They make a proposal and invite the congregation to be part of the solution by selecting capable candidates who will be responsible for the food distribution. Now, they had the authority to just tell people what to do. But that is not what they did. They understood the need of the moment required cooperative interaction to make a plan together and to bring people together through the process and to face this challenge as an opportunity for unity and love and wisdom and humility to prevail and for them to come out the other side of this stronger. And that's what happened. But the apostles understood this. They had faith. So there's criteria that they give. This is an example of their leadership. They thought this through ahead of time. Seven. We don't know why seven. It's a great number. But there's nothing in the text that tells us why seven were chosen. Supposed to be seven men. They thought that through as well. And these men were to be of good reputation. So each of the men was to be known well enough amongst that group of people that they had a reputation. And it was a good reputation. They were supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit. Would be evidenced by their boldness. And their continued service in spite of the threats. And they would be full of wisdom. And this would be demonstrated in numerous ways that people would have seen in their lives up to that point in time. So the process is that they ask for these seven qualified men. And then the brethren select these seven qualified men. And then they bring these men before the apostles. And the apostles then approve of their selection by appointing them. That's the plan that's laid out. So you see the cooperation there and the the mutual respect and the mutual humility that that the leaders and the members have towards one another in this beautiful process, which many have come to call Presbyterianism throughout the course of history. Um, Commentary says, members of the congregation, number one, experience the problem of the uneven distribution of funds and food for the widows. And then number two, identified the problem as it pertained to the widows who belonged to the Greek-speaking part of the congregation. And then three, communicated the problem to the apostles. So somehow the information made its way to the apostles. Four, accepted the proposal of the apostles for solving the problem. Five, nominated seven candidates who would resolve the problem. So you see that that very orderly process that they went, to, went through respecting one another, the leadership and the membership. The apostles, one, provided opportunities for the congregation to voice their grievances. We know that because they found out about it. So there was some kind of openness and communication there. Two, accepted the critique and protest of members of the congregation. They didn't ignore the problem. They didn't say, oh, that's nonsense. You're just making this up. Um, They listened and they accepted the critique and it was a critique of their leadership and they listened and they received it and they responded to it. They acknowledged that the problem was real. They suggested a solution to the problem that would safeguard the priorities of leadership and properly take care of all the needy believers. So they were able to think it through and see everything that needed to be done. They approved the nomination of the seven candidates when they brought the seven candidates back to them. They didn't pitch a fit and try to, well, we don't like these seven They knew enough about the seven themselves to also approve. And number six, commissioned the new ministry leaders for their task. They prayed and laid hands on them. Now, the next thing that happens in this this flow of thought that I want us to be in together is the apostles give their reasons. Okay, So they they want this big, giant congregational meeting. They want the folks to understand why they're making this plan. So they give their reasons. Do they need to give their reasons? Must they give their reasons? No. It demonstrates respect for one another when, when they give the reasons for this plan that they're laying out. The first thing that's said is that it's not desirable for the apostles to leave the word of God and serve tables. The apostles are called to be preaching 
and teaching Jesus as the Christ. That's what they're called to do. They're called to be preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. Everywhere, house to house, in the temple, all day long. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And it turns out they cannot do both preaching and teaching all day and also oversee the daily distribution of foods. They, they, they can't do them both. They can't do both well. Commentary says the preparation for teaching about these matters requires time, as does the actual teaching in the regular daily meetings in Jerusalem, both in the temple and in private houses, and preaching on the occasion of evangelistic trip to Judean towns. They do not want the distribution of food to take up the time they need to fulfill the task to which Jesus has commissioned them. So the apostles were given a specific task. And of course, associated with that is going to be a growing church and all the needs of a growing church. And the apostles are required to oversee that, but they can't allow themselves to move away from the specific mission they were given. The second reason that they give is later on in the text. They say they will give themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So that that idea continually emphasizes for us that overseeing this distribution of food was keeping them from being able to continually carry out what God had called them to do. Now, also, they mention an extra apostolic duty here that wasn't mentioned in their, the first time they gave their reason, and that is prayer. The apostles need all their time to fulfill their particular callings, prayer and the ministry of the word. And it's worth noting, noticing here that this word ministry means service. And so it would be a false way of thinking to say that those who are serving tables are servants and those who are preaching are not. They're both servants. That word ministry, the the essence of it is, is service. And so they're both called to a life of service, but just in different realms. And they're serving Christ and his church in the ways that he has called them to. So the multitude of disciples responds. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen and the rest of the seven. I won't list them all now whom they set before the the apostles. Now, it's easy to just, I think, read right past this and and not notice what a wonderful moment this is. The whole multitude of disciples is pleased by this plan. Now, you know as well as I can, you can't get people to agree on what color the sky is, right? And yet here is this whole multitude, and there are a lot of them. They've been multiplying, right? Right? That's a part of what's in the background here that look at the way the Holy Spirit moves here. Look at the way their attention to the apostles' doctrine and to the fellowship and to the prayers and to the breaking of bread and to the common focus upon Christ and doing his will. Look at how how that has prepared them for being ready for the solution. They're so caught up in love for Christ and accomplishing his mission, they perceive the problem here and it's a real threat to this great love in their hearts for Christ and for his church and for accomplishing the mission. So the Lord prepares them and they agree. They just agree. And apparently even the, whoever it was that brought up the complaint, they agree too. So everybody is satisfied. So an occasion for murmuring and division has become a moment of restoration of the one accord that had been threatened and that was kind of on shaky ground there for a little while. So by working together with the members of the church, the leadership of the church brings everyone together in a plan that makes sense and that promotes more leadership. That's another thing they're doing. They're promoting more leadership and that protects the work of the apostles. So it's, it's something that could have quickly been, you know, The first church of Jerusalem and then the second church of Jerusalem and then the southern church of Jerusalem and then the eastern church of Jerusalem, you know, the beautiful gate church. Right. This could have been a a horrible church split right here at the very beginning. This is a big deal. And God takes them through this and it's not a church split. You know what it is? It's church growth together, not only in grace together, but then in the numbers afterwards. Commentary says, it pleased them to see the apostles so willing 
to have themselves discharged from intermeddling in secular affairs and to transmit them to others. It pleased them to hear that they would give themselves to the word and prayer, and therefore they neither disputed the matter nor deferred the execution of it. So they said yes and amen, and they went off and they chose the seven. Like the very next thing. They loved it, great idea, and they did it, right? That's when you really know that somebody likes the idea, is they actually went and did it. (laughs) Right there on the spot, they did it. They don't delay. The church members are all in, everybody. They choose out seven men meeting the criteria. There's no evidence there was any. I mean, there had to have been like that eighth guy, right? Who was probably, would have been a great fit, but they only wanted seven. There didn't appear to be any fighting about that. They got their seven. They brought them back. And they have the apostles' pleasant instruction. I think that's important to note is that they had the guidance from the apostles to help them. So that helped foster more unity as they're thinking together about what they need to do. And so they choose out these seven pleasing men using the pleasant instructions. And I think that their choosing, if you will, if you think about a choosing, can be akin, seen as akin to the laying on of hands that we see in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 8, verse 10, the people and leadership work together, we'll see, in the Old Testament as well to choose their leaders in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 8 says, So you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. So there is an agreement asked for from the congregation in choosing out leaders that we see even in the Old Testament. Now, it's also likely, when we look at their names, and this gets to the further wisdom in details that the congregation had, Based on looking at their names, it's likely that they would have had the ability to communicate in both Greek and Aramaic. And so that it seems like maybe that became a part of their criteria. And we don't know this for sure, but it appears that way. Commentary says, the seven men have all Greek names, some of whom have not yet been attested among Jews living in Palestine, a fact that suggests that they were diaspora Jews. Since food needed to be distributed not only among the Greek-speaking widows, but among the Aramaic-speaking believers, it may be plausibly assumed that there were either Aramaic-speaking Hebrews believers among the seven, or that some of the seven were bilingual. The latter must be assumed for Philip, who is later described as preaching to audiences in Samaria, who would have required sermons in Aramaic. And so... We can speculate that there was another layer of wisdom uh, that the people were able to come up with in terms of choosing these seven men. So what do they do? They set these seven men before the church leadership, before the apostles. And this is a, a form of humility on their part. They submit their choices to the leadership. The cooperative humility displayed by the apostles is reciprocated by the church members. They submit their selection to the apostles for the apostles' approval. Commentary says the subject of the first verb presented, which here means to bring or to place before someone, is the congregation. So the congregation has brought these seven, laid them, set them before the apostles, presumably represented by leading believers whom Luke does not name. You have to assume that there were believers amongst the congregation who were kind of amongst somehow seen as leaders and were a part of making this process happen because there's a multitude of people. <clears throat> and the latter, uh, the apostles are described as the leaders who make the final decisions concerning new developments in the church, which the introduction of seven official assistants certainly represents. And so the authority is respected and there's mutual respect in terms of wisdom and submitting to one another in the process. So what do the apostles do? When they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So let's, we went through a whole sermon looking at prayer in the book of Acts and this is one of the places. Uh, The apostles looking to the Lord do not complete such an important appointment of seven new leaders without reaching out to God. And so it was a moment where everyone understood that they were reaching out to God. These seven will need the Lord's grace and the Lord's power and the Lord's wisdom to complete their assignment well. 
and to oversee this important task in a way that builds unity and love and affection and avoids future disputes. So they prayed before they laid their hands upon them. Commentary says they prayed with them and for them that God would give them more and more of the Holy Ghost and of wisdom, that he would qualify them for the service to which they were called and own them in it and make them thereby a blessing to the church and particularly to the poor of the flock. All that are employed in the service of the church ought to be committed to the conduct of the divine grace by the prayers of the church. So this encourages us to prayer in committing to the Lord not only our church leaders, but all that we do in the church. Next, they laid hands on them. They put their hands on these seven men, the apostles, before everyone, put their hands upon these seven men. So they're agreeing with the congregation's choice. And their approval of the congregation's choice is visibly displayed by their laying on of hands. There would be no confusion. All the apostles demonstrate that they accept all seven of these men. And this is similar to what we see in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. So there's this public demonstration of approval that's taking place. That's a, a different situation. It's a transition of leadership situation, but it's very similar. The apostles also, though, are displaying their authority in this matter of appointing new church leaders. They're displaying their approval, but they're also displaying that their approval is necessary. And so they're displaying their authority as well. But finally, I think, and most importantly, it's a visible demonstration of the apostles granting their blessings to these men in their ministry. They They want these men to be blessed of the Lord and they want these men and all the people to know that they have their blessing to go forth and to do this. Blessing is another level above approval and demonstration of authority. It includes thoughts of God and thoughts of God's blessing upon them. Having by prayer implored a blessing upon them, they did by the laying on of hands, assure them that the blessing was conferred in answer to the prayer. And this was giving them authority to execute that office and laying an obligation upon the people to be observant of them therein. So there's this demonstration of faith towards God that the Lord will indeed answer these prayers. The Lord will indeed bless them to be able to carry out their ministry. So what's the result? Church growth. Verse 7 says, Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. It is such an encouragement to see that we can have good news story after good news story after good news story in the church of the living God here on earth. This is available to the people of God. We can go through difficulties. The church can go through difficulties And as we are before the Lord together, enjoying him together, doing his will together, he can see us through to the other side so that a threat becomes an occasion for maturing and being made more like Christ. Instead of losing the unity that they had through this administrative failure and the subsequent sinful murmuring and division. I mean, you can see this is a powder keg, right? But again, it emphasizes to us that there weren't all these unspoken cracks and spots awaiting seismic destruction that were present amongst these people. They were of one accord. They had been dealing with things. And so when this popped up, it couldn't be used, it wouldn't be used as a wedge to go ahead and blow the church apart because there was no place to get the wedge in. They were together in Christ. They were loving one another. They were forgiving one another. They were bearing with one another. They were humbling themselves before one another. They were thinking the best about one another. They were believing the best about one another. So instead of losing the unity through this situation with administrative failure followed up by sinful murmuring and division, the apostles respond by bringing the people together 
and leading the people into a cooperative process of solving this together. And there's a lot to learn from this text. I'll probably preach through it again, looking at maybe the origins of the diaconate or something like that. But I think we just, we don't want to, those are good things to learn here. But I mean, the, the story is before us. And the story of this text is God in his grace, by his power, preserving his church. And through the unity and leadership and the cooperation of the membership, overcoming this challenge, this threat. That's the story before us. This brings the church together. It restores the threatened trust and brings back that beautiful one accord that we read about from Psalm 133 and takes the church back into its healthy, powerful impact. But even greater, because listen to what it says now, multiplied greatly. They're not just multiplying, they're multiplying greatly. So maybe before it was X squared, who knows? Maybe now it's X cubed. It's all the math you'll get from me. So this is a phrase that's showing that the church is growing faster than ever before via the spreading of the word of God. So the word of God is spreading and the new disciples coming in are multiplying greatly. So you can see how the Lord is encouraging us to see rightly when we face challenges together as his church. See these challenges properly and see what through trusting him, through wisdom, humility, and courage, through loving Christ and staying devoted to what he's called us to, the other side is more beautiful than what's there to begin with. Threats get transformed into great stories of God's faithfulness. Commentary says Luke adds another summary statement which emphasizes the continued growth of the church. And it's plausible to see a connection between the continued growth of the church and the renewed focus of the apostles on prayer and on preaching and teaching the word of God and to the newly organized care for the needy believers in the church through the daily distribution of food. So there's an implication here that perhaps the apostles had not been continually devoting themselves to prayer and to the word. And now when they get back to that, it's greatly multiplying. When the word of God goes forth, powerful, powerful when the word of God goes forth. And by overcoming this significant internal trial, the church somehow develops a new place of influence and evangelistic success. (coughs) And let's don't just read right past this. Not only do they continue in growth, in general, through all the various places where they had influence and growth already, and even more, multiplied greatly, but there's a new area. Many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You know those hard-hearted ones that'll never change? You know that place where you'll never have influence? Those folks you give up on? God shows how beautiful it is when his people come together and look to him and trust him to overcome discord and to bring the people together to continue in doing what he calls them to do. Commentary says, then is the word and grace of God greatly magnified when those are wrought upon by it that were least likely as the priests here who either had opposed it or at least were linked in with those that had. The priests whose preferments arose from the law of Moses were yet willing to let them go for the gospel of Christ. And it should seem they came in a body. Many of them agreed together for the keeping up of one another's credit and the strengthening of one another's hands to join at once in giving up their names to Christ. And so this should greatly encourage us because is there any heart too hard for the Lord God if he chooses to move from heaven by his spirit and give fruit to his word in their life? Why no, there's not. And so we are greatly encouraged to see the outcome of trusting the Lord in the midst of threats to the well-being. This is a very serious threat to the well-being of the church. So a few points to emphasize for us to consider in our lives today. Why was this church 
Why was this church, right? The church of Jerusalem, the first church of Jerusalem, right? Why was this church able to work through this difficulty without a painful church split? Why were they able to do that? Well, I think we have to look back in the course of the book of Acts to a few points that we hope will be true of us. We've talked about this. They were receiving the outpouring of God's spirit from heaven. The Lord had poured out his Holy Spirit upon them at Pentecost. And so we must pause there and consider ourselves. Are we walking in the spirit I think one way to answer this question is by looking to Galatians 5 and considering the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are primarily relational qualities, if you think about them at root. They're relational qualities. And so these individuals had humbled themselves before the Lord and before one another, and particularly this idea of gentleness. There was, this, there was a, a widespread meekness and littleness of mind that was present that allowed them to be able to listen to one another and to work through this like Jesus would have them to. Imagine the self-control that was necessary for this murmuring to not become all-out slanderous gossip against the apostles. Well, who would know that Peter wouldn't do like something like this? He's always, he's always been a bigot. You know, who, who, there were thoughts that were in their minds that they were able to not speak. And there was a sense of devotion to Christ that was given to them from the Spirit and to the mission that they had received from Christ. They were devoted, steadfastly devoted, continuing in the apostles' doctrine. This group of disciples were constantly learning from the word of God. They were able to deal with this significant shaking of their system of love and togetherness because the Holy Spirit was present And because they were studying and learning the word of God together day in and day out, they had the focus before them constantly. And so they knew they could rightly interpret what was happening. This is not good. This is a big deal. Let's deal with this properly and move forward stronger. In addition, we know that they cared about the fellowship, right? The fellowship of the saints was very important to them. They were enjoying each other. Right? They were having good times together and they were also looking after each other. Right? They were feeding, giving each other food and taking care of one another. And so what we need to see here is that there were strong bonds of love that were in place. God had established and was establishing a significant network of joy and togetherness that they did not want to lose. They didn't want the first church and the second church of Jerusalem. They wanted to continue in their togetherness and the joy of the bonds of love and the fellowship of the saints that God had given them. And because of the apostles' doctrine, because of the work of the Holy Spirit and their focus upon Christ and the joy of salvation and the mission that they were caught up in, they were able to really be together already in a very powerful way. So there was a a depth of unity and community that was in place that protected them and gave them what they needed to be ready to be prepared to deal with this perturbation to their system. They had a visible, a visible experience together of all of this in the regular celebration of the Lord's Supper. They were regularly celebrating the breaking of the bread together. And so they were being strengthened and encouraged and nourished from heaven by God's word, by the Lord's Supper, by the Holy Spirit, and by one another. And so when this strong, major threat came along, this beautiful, living church continued to go forward. It was so strong it could take this threat. Now, 
How do you think the church leadership responded in this situation? How do you think the church members responded in this situation? And how is that connected with why they were able to succeed? I think it's caught up in these three ideas of wisdom, humility, and courage. Both the church leadership and the church membership demonstrated wisdom, humility, and courage. We've already talked about it a little bit, but consider the wisdom that the church leaders had to see the problem and to offer a good solution. And the humility they had to lay out their plan before everybody. What if they don't like it? You know, can you, I must come. What, what if it doesn't go well? Well, they had the, the, they had the humility to lay it out before everybody and the courage to wait and see what God would do in that situation. And, and the members, they had the wisdom to listen, to come together and to listen to the plan that was laid out and to embrace it and to work it and to follow it. And they also had the courage and humility to, to submit their ideas, their selections of the seven to the apostles. And so you see this mutual respect, mutual humility that is necessary to work through this. And God gave them this and gave them what they needed. And there was already a lot of trust in place between church, the church leadership and the church membership. Next, how do you see these kinds of challenges? Um, do you see them as opportunities for God's grace to abound? I think that's one maxim we should take from this text is that we should see any threat against God's church, especially a threat to divide God's people as an opportunity for grace to abound even more, for grace to abound even more. And that's not just within a local assembly, but on a larger scale, looking at God's church in our region, in our state, in the land, there are ideas, there are things out there that threaten to divide. Do we see these as opportunities for God's grace to abound and for the church to be stronger and more beautiful and more influential and growing even more as a result of how God would see us through these things? Church threats become stories of grace and growth. That's, I think, an important principle that by faith we would take from this story, this beautiful example of what God did that we can take with us into today's world. I think Paul is an example of this uh, in his own life, but I think we can also take this text as a closing text to really emphasize to us the major principle on display here in this text today. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writing, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, this is Paul. The quote from Jesus is over. Paul goes on and says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in, in, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so I think that's what this beautiful set of events demonstrates to us is we are weak, but he is strong. And as we go through whatever we face, looking to him, trusting him, all of our weaknesses, all of our points of brokenness, all of our infirmities, all of our distresses, all of them we can take pleasure in for Christ's sake, whether it be individually or in relationships, in our marriages, or in our family, or in our church. God is able and willing to transform all of the threats in our lives into stories demonstrating that His grace abounds. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask that, Lord, these wondrous truths, 
that you've demonstrated to us, Lord, would not just be in our minds as something to observe and marvel over, but also, Lord, that we would believe these wondrous truths for our own lives. That indeed, when we are weak, we are strong in our own lives. And that we can indeed take pleasure in our infirmities and in our persecutions, in our difficulties, and all of our weaknesses. That we can rejoice that your power is made perfect in our weakness. And that when we are weak, we are strong. Oh, Father, may you be glorified. May the name of Christ be glorified in all of our weaknesses. And give us faith and hope to see every challenge as an opportunity for you to demonstrate your glory and the greatness of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.